Peter and the pilgrims. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Two whole verses today, brothers and sisters. You should be excited. This is a wealth of Scripture. Let's read together there. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Amen. One final word on Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, from Matthew Henry, the great commentator of old. Matthew says, In this humble manner, Peter asserts his own character as an apostle. Hence learn, a man may lawfully acknowledge and sometimes is bound to assert the gifts and graces of God to him. To pretend to what we have not is hypocrisy, and to deny what we have is ingratitude. He mentions his apostolical function as his warrant and call to write this epistle to these people. Note, it concerns all, but especially ministers, to consider well their warrant and call from God to their work. This will justify them to others and give them inward support and comfort under all dangers and discouragements. Thus, Matthew Henry is stating that Peter's opening declaration an identification of himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is not an undue boast. It is not Peter in the flesh singing his own praises. It is Peter declaring rightly God's calling on his life and his position as an apostle. And thus, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, dear church, you should listen to what I have to say. That's the ground upon which he stands. And in our current era in American churchianity, there is a bit of rebellion going on, some of it caused by abusive pastors, some of it caused by overbearing pastors, some of it caused by false pastors, who are no pastors at all, abusing the office and perverting the role of the pastorate. But some just by the hearts of men rising up. But to say such things as there are no good men, that we should not in any way honor those who the Bible says are due honor because they're all just men. And there's truth there, of course. They are just men. And left to themselves, there are no good men. But I am here to tell you that if I was alive in Peter's day, I would honor Peter as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And if Peter said, let's get up and go to such and such a place and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'd say, hey, let's get up and go to such and such a place and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostle of Jesus Christ has spoken. And that would be all in due order. I wouldn't say, Peter, you take too much upon yourself. We're all followers of Jesus here. Let's take a vote. (laughs) So Peter has an office, and Peter has authority, and Peter has a message, and that all goes together. 
and it goes together rightly. And every pastor ought to be able to say that the Lord has called him. And the Lord has given him a level of authority to preach the word. And while every believer is to be a Berean to search the scriptures to see if what is being preached is the truth, the the pastor is to recognize that calling and that authority in their life and to stand upon it, if indeed it's valid. And so let us not be rebels in this rebellious age where no authority is respected. The authority of God isn't respected. The authority of government isn't respected. The authority of church government isn't respected. The authority of family government, mom and dad, isn't respected. All authority is under assault today, including authority in the local church. And so let us not be part of that. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter's writings to the pilgrims, first point. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter's writing to the pilgrims. Picture the envelope. This is in the center of the envelope. Up in the upper left-hand corner, it's Peter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In the center of the envelope is two, the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia. What can you learn from an envelope? Well, it's not literally in an envelope, but it's kind of like that. This is who the letter is to. Now, by extension, the letter is to all Christians for all time in all places. But in its original writing, it was to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So who are these pilgrims of the dispersion? Again, our elder brother Matthew Henry says they are described by their external condition with these words. Later we'll see they're described by their internal or spiritual condition. He says these pilgrims are strangers dispersed throughout Pontus, Galatia, etc. They were chiefly Jews, descended from those Jews who were translated or captured and removed from Babylon by order of Antichius, king of Syria, about 200 years before the coming of Christ, and placed in the cities of Asia Minor. It is very likely that our apostle had been among them and converted them, being the apostle of the circumcision, and that afterwards he wrote this epistle to them from Babylon, where multitudes of the Jewish nation then resided. At present, their circumstances were poor and afflicted. The best of God's servants may, through the hardships of times and providences, be dispersed about and forced to leave their native countries." Those of whom the world was not worthy have been forced to wander in mountains and dens and caves of the earth. We ought to have a special regard to the dispersed, persecuted servants of God. These were the objects of this apostle's particular care and compassion. We should proportion our regard to the excellency and to the necessity of the saints. The value of good people ought not to be estimated by their present external condition. Here was a set of excellent people, beloved of God, and yet strangers, dispersed and poor in the world. The eye of God was upon them in all their dispersions, and the apostle was tenderly careful to write to them for their direction and consolation. You find, in contrast, not 
to say it's negative. But in contrast, John Calvin dedicated all of his commentaries to queens and kings and princes and princesses and the rulers of the lands to edify them. And that is good and wonderful. And yet here at the other end of the spectrum, we find Peter writing his epistle to the lowest of society, to those who are dispersed about and very likely suffering in the faith for Jesus Christ. Those that Peter knows because he went on his evangelistic journeys, his apostolic journeys, his missionary ministry to the known world. Thus he writes to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. By extension, all believers are pilgrims. All believers are pilgrims. We're just passing through on our way to glory. Hebrews 11, verse 8 and following says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He was a pilgrim traveling, following God in faith, not knowing exactly where he was going, but going where God told him to go. By faith. He went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker was God. And we are pilgrims like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We're just passing through this world, waiting for the promised city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We're waiting for heaven to come down. We're waiting for the new Jerusalem to come down. Hebrews 11, verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return, but now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. These pilgrims living in tents, these pilgrims that Hebrews 11 tells us were the off-scouring of the world, the, the rejected of the world, strangers and pilgrims in the earth are beloved of God. God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. These pilgrims are not the great rulers of the land. They're they're not the wealthy of the world, generally speaking. And yet God is unashamed of them. God claims them. Where many of the wealthy, where many of the rulers will be rejected, they will hear real... They will hear, go from me, I did not know you. These genuine pilgrims who desire a better country, a heavenly country, who recognize that they were just passing through and thus they kept their eyes fixed on heaven to come and upon Jesus Christ therein, God is not ashamed to be called their God. 
for he has prepared a city for them. And the Lord Jesus spoke of that city. In my Father's house are many mansions. In Matthew 8, verse 11, the Lord Jesus said, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so this, this is speaking to the, the Gentiles who will come from the east and the west, and they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then it's a warning to the sons of the kingdom, those who are literal blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, literal Jews, and they will be cast out. That A great many of them will be cast out. There will only be the remnant that Romans 11 speaks of, the elect remnant of Israel, who are called into that final kingdom. But many pilgrims, will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That, that is our future. As pilgrims just passing through, following Jesus, we will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven on earth where Christ will rule and reign, where Christ will be the light of the world, where God will be our father and we will be his children forever. Revelation 21 speaks of this. Now I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea than I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Then verse 5, then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. God is going to make all things new. You don't have to overly fret China or Russia or the Russian-Ukraine war or the stock market or the recession, recession, recession. Anyone tired of hearing about recession? Oh, my. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. They want you perpetually scared, terrified. Oh, saints, the kingdom is coming, and we're just pilgrims passing through. We may have a bigger, nicer tent. We may end up with an actual tent in the end. We may have electricity in our tent and running water. We may end up with tent and a porta potty. You don't know. But it's just a tent, and we're just passing through. So don't get too hung up on the tent, the size of the tent, the care of the tent, the garden out front of the tent, the garden behind the tent. It's just a tent. You're just passing through. And the body you dwell in even is just a tent. And you're just passing through. This is not you. And this is not your home. Our home is coming. New heavens and new earth in which only righteousness dwells. Where we will be with God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and where we will have bodies fit for that kingdom to dwell in the new heavens and new earth with God as the children of God forever and ever and ever. That is the end of the story and it has no end. This is just a blink in time. So don't fret. Don't worry. Fix your eyes like those pilgrims of Hebrews 11, 
Fix your eyes by faith and wait for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Wait for the better country, the heavenly country, and press on toward that goal. Peter's writings to the pilgrims. You know, in that day of relative poverty and financial insecurity, political insecurity, and general insecurity, where your life is threatened by all sorts of diseases, every woman's life is threatened by childbirth with every child, your life is threatened by the water you drink and what might be in it. Your life is threatened by constant famine. Your life is threatened by kings and would-be kings that rise up against the kings. In that day, it was easier in some ways to fix your eyes on the kingdom that was to come. In our day, where we have had relative peace, two world wars aside, for a long, long time, And it's been a long time since we've had a world war. In our day of peace and prosperity globally and certainly locally here in the United States of America, it's harder to fix your eyes on the kingdom to come and to find your hope and joy and satisfaction there. And so we want to fix our eyes on the kingdom that's around us. And we attempt to find hope and joy and satisfaction here. And that will always fail you. Because your metal things will always rust. And your valuable things will always get stolen or taxed. Which is the same thing. Or confiscated. (laughs) And your loved ones, who hopefully you're only acquiring those things to enjoy with your loved ones, your loved ones will perish. They will perish. And so value the kingdom to come and value seeing your loved ones in that kingdom and place little value on the things of this world because they're all passing away. Peter's writing to the pilgrims. Peter's writing to the elect. Again, First Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I can't deny that I was tempted to make this six separate sermons. Election, foreknowledge, sanctification, obedience, and the blood of Jesus. Is that six? Thereabouts. But we're going to lump it all into one message. But hear me, there is vast truth in these terms. Each one of them could be a series of sermons. But we will bump into these realities several times over as we study through 1 Peter and perhaps 2 Peter to follow. Here, Matthew Henry says that the recipients of Peter's letter are described by their spiritual condition. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. 
These poor strangers who were oppressed and despised in the world were nevertheless in high esteem with the great God and in the most honorable state that any person can be in during this life. For they were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Continuing to quote Matthew Henry, Election is either to an office, so Saul was the man whom the Lord chose to be king, 1 Samuel 10, 24. And our Lord says to his apostles, Have not I chosen you twelve? John 6, verse 70. Or it is to a church state for the enjoyment of special privileges. Thus Israel was God's elect, Deuteronomy 7, 6. For thou art a people unto the Lord thy God. For the Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Or it is to eternal salvation that they are elect. God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth. This is the election here spoken of. Importing God's gracious decree or resolution to save some and bring them through Christ by proper means to eternal life. This election is said to be according to the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge may be taken in two ways. First, the mere prescience, foresight, or understanding that such a thing will be before it comes to pass. Thus, a mathematician certainly foreknows that at such and such a time, there will be an eclipse. This sort of foreknowledge is in God, who at one commanding view sees all things that ever were or are or ever will be. But such a prescience, pre-knowledge, pre-science, prescience, is not the cause why anything is so or so. Though in the event it certainly will be so, as the mathematician who foresees an eclipse does not thereby cause that eclipse to be. Secondly, foreknowledge sometimes signifies counsel, appointment, or approbation. In Acts 2.23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The death of Christ was not only foreseen, but foreordained. As verse 20, take it thus here, so the sense is elect according to the counsel, ordination, and free grace of God. It is added, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the Father we are here to understand, the first person of the blessed Trinity. There is an order among the three persons. Though no superiority, they are equal equal in power and glory, and there is an agreed economy in their works. Thus, in the affair of man's redemption, election is by way of imminency ascribed to the Father, as reconciliation is to the Son, and sanctification of the Holy Ghost. Though in each of these, one person is not so entirely interested as to exclude the other two. Hereby, the persons of the Trinity are more clearly discovered to us, and we are taught what obligations we are under to each of them distinctly. Thus ends Matthew's commentary regarding Peter's writing to the elect who are foreknown. Let us consider this foreknowledge here spoken of in verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. On what basis does God elect? There are those Arminian friends who are in error who say that God's election is based upon his foreknowledge that 
unregenerate sinners, who the Bible says are dead in sin and trespass, elect God. They elect to repent. They elect to believe. They elect Jesus as their personal king. And God, looking down the corridor of time, has foreknowledge that they will elect God, elect Jesus to be their savior, elect Jesus as their king, and repent of their sins. And thus, based upon their foreknowledge, God elects them. That is known theologically as rubbish. It's nonsense. It makes the term election nonsensical. It makes the term predestined nonsensical because you'd have to put predestined in the same category and define it the same way. God predestines you as you destine yourself and God looks down the quarter of time and sees that you are destining yourself by repenting and believing upon Jesus and confessing him as Lord and making him your king. Nonsense. Rubbish. So how are we to understand elect according to foreknowledge? Well, I'll not give you the Greek word, but I'll tell you that the Greek word here translated foreknowledge is also found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Same Greek word. Same Greek word. But here it's not translated for knowledge, it's translated for ordained. Because when you speak of God's foreknowledge, it's not simple prescience. It's not that God just foreknows, that he precedes it. It's that he foreordains it, therefore he foreknows it. How does God foreknow anything and everything? Because God ordains all that comes to pass. That's how. As 1 Peter 1.20 says, he, Jesus, speaking of Jesus in context, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Did God look down the quarter of time and see that Jesus would come, suffer, and die, and rise again on the third day? And oh, look, my son, look what he's doing. This is wonderful. No. Thus, the same Greek word is translated foreordained. And so when you hear of God's foreknowledge, think foreordained. When you read foreordained, think foreknowledge. The two go hand in hand. Don't try to separate them one from the other. God's election is not based upon something God foresees. No, God elects, therefore he has foreordained what's going to come to pass. And what's going to come to pass is that his elect are going to repent and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and be saved. And by the way, how is it mechanically, if you will, or spiritually, that that takes place? The Holy Spirit must regenerate them from the dead and illuminate their blind eyes, thus empowering them to cry out, woe is me, I'm a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. What must I do to be saved? Or something to that effect. In order to empower them to repent, in order to empower them to come to the beginning of knowledge, which is the fear of God. The Spirit of God must regenerate the dead soul and illuminate the blind eyes. Thus, regeneration precedes repentance and faith. If these things are new to you, we're we're swimming in a bit of deep theological water. Swim hard. Swim biblically. Don't, don't insist on arguments that are born out of your own personal sense of justice or right and wrong or understanding that you 
received from your parents or even some pastor, go to the scriptures and let them speak to you. Scriptures like this, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, as we're considering the relationship of election and foreknowledge. Ephesians 1, verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined, election and predestined are very similar terms, slight difference, but same topic, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So what is the foundation of God's predestining? It's him working all things according to the counsel of his will. It's not him looking down the quarter of time to see what you with your will will choose to do or believe. Again, that makes nonsense of predestination. God's predestining is built upon or is according to the purpose of him, God, capital H, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's predestining is not according to the purpose of him, lowercase h, meaning each individual him or her, who works all things according to the counsel of their will. You do not work anything according to the counsel of your will, ultimately. Your will is utterly inside the will of God. You will never do anything that God has not allowed you to do. What do I mean? Well, I mean the day the terrorists took the box cutters onto the planes with them, the Lord allowed them to exercise their will accordingly because according to God's sovereign plan, it was the day of death for every man, woman, and child that died that day in those twin towers, on those planes, in the Pentagon, and in that field in Pennsylvania. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. Not a sparrow falls to the ground, except the Lord allows it. And so the box cutters didn't go rogue, and God was busy off on the other side of the cosmos calling the stars by name, and things got out of hand on earth that day in a couple of airports with a couple of jihadis. No, God sovereignly authored that day to bring some of his elect, some of his saved home to heaven, and they never regretted going to work in the Pentagon, going to the work in those Twin Towers, or getting on those planes that day. It was instant glory. And to bring the day of judgment upon the wicked the wicked jihadis and all the other wicked who were in the Twin Towers, in the Pentagon, and on those planes. Because you're either the redeemed, washed by the blood of the Lamb, made righteous by the foreign alien righteousness of Christ being imputed to you, or you're the wicked. And the wicked, whether they live a long and peaceful life, will go to hell at the end of that life. And so God was just... And God was sovereign on that fateful day. And nothing was outside of the control and ultimate will of God. God has allowed evil for his own glory, for the good of his elect, and ultimately the judgment of the wicked. And God is glorified in his wrath upon the wicked, and he is glorified in his mercy upon the wicked. And ultimately, those discussions end in Romans 9, where we will not go today. But let us consider in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, the relationship, again, of election and foreknowledge. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And so this is the sovereign box 
where God is in control of all things, working all things according to the counsel of his will. He has delivered Jesus according to his purpose and foreknowledge. Again, is it God looking down the quarter of time or God foreordaining kind of foreknowledge? It's the God foreordaining kind of foreknowledge. His determined purpose and foreknowledge. <coughs> Excuse me. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. So their lawless hands, lawlessness speaks to what? Sin. Their lawless hands, their sinful hands, they're still accountable for their sin, but their lawless hands were not outside of the will of God. When they beat Jesus, when they spit on Jesus, when they drove the nails into the only innocent man's flesh, when they mocked him and cursed him, that was their sin. And yet God's determined purpose and foreknowledge, foreordination came to pass in all of that for God's glory in the redemption of sinners, including at least one, I believe, who was part of the beating, the centurion, who said, surely this was the Son of God. In Romans 8, 28 through 30. I know we're flirting closely with Romans 9. Don't get excited. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Again, we see the relationship between election and foreknowledge, and we rightly understand it. And it says, And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, how could we know that? There's more to get to here. How could we know that except that God was sovereign in it? It wasn't happenstance. He is sovereign in all the details of our lives, and everyone's lives, and all of history. Thus we can know that all things, because all things are according to his will, Ephesians 1.11, all things work according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his, the counsel of his will. So thus we know that all things work together for the good or for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, verse 29, whom he foreknew, foreknowledge, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay, let's stop there. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So how can foreknowledge be God looking down the corridor of time? Hey, look, that guy is conforming himself to the image of my son. Ah, therefore, I foreknow him and I elect him. <laughs> Nonsense. Those he foreknew, those he foreordained, he what? He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among Many brethren. Verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Who is the mover here? God. It's called monergism. It's not synergism. It's not us cooperating with God. It's God moving us to seek him. Thus, God is the author and the finisher of our faith. It is a monergistic salvation. For all whom he has predestined, these he also called. It is a sovereign call. When God calls, guess what? You come. You're not that dog who needs to be beat with a newspaper. 
You're not that child who needs the rod. When God calls, you come. He is sovereign. You will come. You will repent. You will confess Christ as Lord. Period. The arguments that God is a gentleman. I challenge you from Genesis to Revelation to show me this gentleman God who calls and lets you do whatever you like. When God calls, Satan comes. You think you won't come? Have you read Job? When God calls, the wind and the waves come. When God calls, the earthquakes come. When God calls, demons come. When God calls, the devil himself comes. When God calls, unregenerate sinners are made regenerate, repentant, and they confess Jesus Christ as Lord, they come. And they will never be lost. For God has predestined them. Their destination is set. And their destination is with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom to come. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. God is the mover every step of the way. He predestines, he calls. He justifies. He glorifies. This is the golden chain of salvation. It is unbreakable. He predestines. Once that's set, and it's set in eternity past, everything else will come to pass. The predestined are called. The called come and are justified. The justified will not be lost. Not one will escape the Lord's hand or be snatched from it. They will be glorified. Thus, we rightly understand election and the foreknowledge of God. But one more place, one further portion of Scripture, stepping lightly over Romans 9, so as not to get stuck. <coughs> Romans 11, verse 2. Romans 11, verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Paul here opens the chapter saying, what, what about the Jews? What about my people? What? Why do they reject the cornerstone? Why do they reject the Messiah? Why do they reject the Christ, their their Lord, their Savior? What about them? And God answers. Romans 11 verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace, the election of grace, the election of According to foreknowledge, the election according to foreordination, the election of grace, sovereign grace. So there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it's no longer grace. In other words, it's not something you did. It's not you of yourself repenting. It's not you of yourself confessing Jesus as Lord. It's not you of yourself following Jesus. It's God, regenerating your dead soul, calling you, justifying you, and glorifying you for his own glory. Back to Romans 11, verse 5. Even so then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. 
And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. So Israel as a whole has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect of Israel, like Paul, have obtained it. And they will. They will. That verse closes with saying, and the rest were blinded. The elect have obtained it. The rest were blinded. We're blind in our sin. Is that not what the great hymn of our faith says? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. Now I'm found. Was blind. But now I see. Now I see. If you haven't read or listened to in the era of audiobooks, a biography of Newton, the author of that hymn, I recommend that you read or listen to a biography of Newton. Incredible tale of amazing grace. He wasn't just writing a song off the cuff. I know, this will be catchy. He knew what amazing grace was. As a former slave trader involved in the deepest and darkest sin of his day, and he himself was so wicked that eventually he found himself a slave among slaves. And God's amazing grace rescued him from slavery and made him a slave of Christ, born again from above, and a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who knew what it was to be blind and now to see by amazing grace. Grace alone. So the Lord must regenerate our dead hearts. The Lord must open our blind eyes. The Lord must grant us the beginning of knowledge, the fear of God, repentance, faith. These are gifts of God. Thus, we rightly understand the recipients of Peter's epistle to be the elect, according to the foreknowledge, the sovereign foreknowledge, the sovereign ordination, foreordination, of God. That's who we are talking about. Peter's writing to the elect, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And as Matthew Henry rightly said, God the Father elects or predestines or chooses, depending on what text you're talking about, all the same reality. The Son redeems, the Spirit regenerates. They each have their lane, so to speak, of primary work in redemption and salvation, and yet they all are united in the work of salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God. Secondly, here, they were elect through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So elect according to foreknowledge, of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So that'd be second, third, fourth, and so forth. Again, Matthew Henry comments on this, saying the end and last result of election is eternal life and salvation. But before this can be accomplished, every elect person must be sanctified by the Spirit and justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. God's decree for man's salvation always operates through sanctification of the Spirit and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. By sanctification here, understand, not a federal sanctification only, legal, 
but a real one begun in regeneration, whereby we are renewed after the image of God and made new creatures and carried on the daily exercise of holiness, mortifying our sins more and more and living to God in all the duties of the Christian life, which is here summed up in one word, obedience, comprehending all the duties of Christianity. Now, don't understand that to be uh, up and to the right, right? If, if you look at the stock market, you would all like it to be up and to the right. That'd be great. What does the stock market actually do? Up, down, 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 up, 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 up. Now, if you just leave your money there, theoretically, it will go up to the right. But there's a whole lot of down in the mix of the up and to the right. But in the history of the stock market, it is substantially up and to the right. In every Christian's life, there will be ups. There may be some significant downs. But overall, it is up and to the right. (laughs) growing in righteousness. And so praise God for his grace upon imperfect sinners. And again, there's no better person to teach us that than Peter. Up and to the right. Now, Peter had some significant deviations. The market's not looking good today, Peter. And some radical recoveries. We're in the green again. Look at that. Praise God. But you're always under the blood. Red or green, you're always under the blood. Praise God. Matthew Henry continues, The legal or typical sanctification operated no further than the purifying of the flesh, but the Christian dispensation takes effect upon the spirit of man and purifies that. Others, with better reason, think that by spirit is meant the Holy Ghost, the author of sanctification. He renews the mind, mortifies our sins, It produces his excellent fruits in the hearts of Christians. The sanctification of the Spirit implies the use of means. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. John 17, 17, said the Lord Jesus. Unto obedience, this word, as it is pointed in our translation, is referred to what goes before it and denotes the end of sanctification, which is to bring rebellious sinners to obedience, to universal obedience, to obey the truth and the gospel of Christ. You have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Now let's break this down a bit through the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 and 2 gives us two types of sanctification. And there are two basic types of sanctification. There is positional sanctification and there is practical sanctification. Positional sanctification is finished. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the Lord. You are sanctified, set apart unto God, and you will always be in that position. You are under the blood. Then there's practical sanctification. And context gives you the understanding of what sanctification you're talking about, depending on which text you're in. And sometimes there's some confusion on that. Positional and practical. You cannot get unsanctified positionally. You are, if you're in Christ, if you're born again, if you are elect and God's electing work in your life has come to the point of regeneration, you are sanctified. And yet you are being sanctified. Positionally, you are sanctified. Practically, you are being sanctified. Now, confusion breaks out in the holiness groups that are out there. And my wife and I have had the displeasure of coming across some of those folks. And we spent some time in a, in a, a medical office waiting room. I guess it was a hospital waiting room. 
with one of these characters, called himself a pastor. Um, and he had, he had not sinned in years. He, he's without sin. And I asked him, you know, and I wasn't trying to be mean or whatever. I was just trying to love him and bring some truth to him, some reality. Um, so you're married, huh? You're without sin. What if we asked your wife? You're, you're a father, huh? Without sin. What if we asked your children? Oh, you have a driver's license? Did you drive to the hospital today? And you're without sin? Should we ask the police? Should we ask every stop sign between here and your house? Without sin. Do not sin. The holiness doctrines that, that real Christians don't sin and can't sin is foolishness. It's foolishness. And you know what they become? They become great sinners because they're deceivers. They have to deceive themselves and others. It's not true doctrine. Uh, Thus, the Bible says something like, uh, we are to confess our sins and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And he who says he's without sin is a liar. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, somebody's sinning right now, my friend. Liar! (laughs) Uh, So this was early in our Christian life. I went on a trip with this pastor and the men of his church, and they were sinners. I was shocked. I was shocked at the conversation. I was shocked at the movies they watched in their room, not my room. I heard the next day what they watched that night. Oh, you guys are so without sin that you can sin, and it's not sin. You can enjoy and rejoice in sin, and it's not sin. You can backbite and be ugly and talk bad about your wives, and it's not sin. Wow. i got to get a hold of this stuff. No, I don't want any part of it. That's what happens when you don't understand positional sanctification and practical sanctification. We are sanctified. We are being sanctified. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. They are sanctified, called to be saints. Practical, ongoing sanctification. So they are sanctified, and they're called to be hagios, to be holy, to be saintly. With all who in every place Call in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, we have positional sanctification. And we have, without it being stated, but topically speaking, we have practical sanctification. It says there in verse 9, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What is that speaking of? Those who are practically not sanctified. You claim to be a Christian. He's writing to the Christians, professing Christians in Corinth. You claim to be a Christian, but you're not sanctified at all. You claim to be Christians, and yet um, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. You won't be with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You won't be in the new heavens and new earth. You're not a good pilgrim just passing through. No, you've got some roots, and your roots are deep into some ugly sin. You are not evidencing that you are positionally sanctified and the fact that you are not practically sanctified to the extreme. We all need to grow in sanctification, but we, if we are still living in fornication, 
Can genuine, positionally sanctified Christians fornicate? Yes, they can fall in the sin of fornication. Do they live there? No, if they're living there, if that's who they are, if that's their practice, then they're practicing lawlessness. And Jesus will say, go from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. We need to become practicers of righteousness, born again from above, positionally sanctified, and thus we are practically being sanctified. We're not dismissing our sin. Hey, look at this sin. I've got my adulteress. I've got my fornication. I've got my homosexuality. I've got my uh, status as a local drunkard. No. Being sanctified. These are not being sanctified. These are continuing in their sin. And thus, the Lord, through Paul, lovingly admonishes them, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That's who you were. You're not that anymore. God regenerated your dead soul. He granted you repentance and faith. Therefore, you were washed, but you were washed, but you were sanctified positionally. Sealed unto God. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, speaking of the Apostle Paul's ministry, it says, To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, and for the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So they are positionally set apart unto God by faith in Jesus Christ. Positional sanctification. In uh, 2 Thessalonians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, we see practical ongoing sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Again, context gives us the right understanding of what sanctification we're talking about. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And thus we're talking about ongoing practical sanctification, that we don't give ourselves over to sexual immorality, but rather flee from sexual immorality, flee from lust. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, But we are bound to give thanks to God Always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for sanctification, or excuse me, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. God chose you. He doesn't write to the Thessalonian church saying, you guys are so smart. You're so innately spiritual. You chose God. Good job. No, he writes and gives God the glory, saying that, You are beloved by the Lord because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit, positional sanctification by the Spirit. He regenerated you and set you apart unto himself. He chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Because when God sanctifies you by the Spirit, you what? You believe the truth. To which he called you by our gospel. He called you by our gospel. For the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. 
This is practical, ongoing sanctification. Stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. That speaks to practical sanctification. Okay, enough on that. Back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. For obedience. So if you are elect, according to God's foreordination, His foreknowledge, you will be sanctified by the Spirit. You will be set apart unto God. And that will result in obedience. That will result in practical sanctification, ongoing sanctification, not perfect obedience, but growing obedience in the overall spectrum, your, your uh, up and to the right spiritual life. For obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. For obedience. Obedience. Obedience has fallen out of fashion. Again, because abuses of legalists. And we don't want to be legalists. We don't want to claim salvation through obedience, salvation through works righteousness, nor do we want to claim, um, again, foolishly, our own personal holiness. I have aspired or I've reached a level of holiness. I haven't sinned now for 12 years. Nonsense. But we do want to uplift the reality of Scripture that when God, as the author and the finisher of our salvation, saves us, He saves us not to continue in rebellion, but to be obedient. We are born again. We were rebels. Now we're saints. We were rebels. Now we're slaves of righteousness. Doulos. We were slaves of Satan. Ephesians 2. Now we're slaves of Jesus Christ. Do loss of Christ, bought with his blood. 2 Thessalonians is my favorite verse regarding obedience. It speaks of, in verse 7, the return of the Lord Jesus. And it says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear me, ignorance is no excuse, those who do not know God. Every man knows God in the ultimate sense. This isn't justifying their their atheistic claims. Well, there just wasn't enough evidence. No, this is saying they suppress the truth and unrighteousness in accordance with Romans 1. And so God, because they have rejected him as their creator and made themselves to be their own gods, going their own way, deciding for themselves what's right and wrong, will bring fiery vengeance through the Son, Jesus Christ, when he returns and... Not just on those who do not know God, but those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is not to be trifled with. The gospel is not to be merely believed. The gospel is to be obeyed. Jesus Christ is not to be trifled with. He's not to be received merely as a savior. He's to be confessed and obeyed as your Lord. He's not your buddy. He's not your pal. He calls you friend. You call him Lord. Master. And if by the grace of God you do call him Lord and Master, then yes, you can call him Savior and friend, for he is your very best friend. The gospel is to be obeyed. And those who do not obey the gospel, 
those who treat it lightly, those who trample it beneath their unholy ecumenical feet, those who profess to believe the gospel and preach it out of one side of their mouth while saying the Pope is a brother in Christ, while saying Roman Catholics are brothers and sisters in Christ at the same time as Doug Wilson does, they do not obey the gospel. They do not honor it. They blaspheme it. And thus, unless they repent, my confidence is, according to the clear truth of Scripture, that they will be under the fiery wrath of Jesus, whom they have blasphemed by saying you can be both Roman Catholic, believing a false gospel and trusting in a false Christ that you eat and drink for justification and born again as a brother and sister in Christ. You cannot both believe the true gospel and the false gospel of Rome. And thus you do not obey the gospel. Galatians 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Romans 1, verse 5, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the whole goal of his apostleship, says, Through him, Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. For what end? For obedience to the faith among all the nations. Well, that's not spiritual enough, Paul. Obedience, you legalist. (laughs) Well, see, that's the ultimate result of God choosing you or predestining you or electing you according to his foreknowledge slash foreordination is that you are born again through the power of the Holy Spirit and you obey in things like repentance and confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. At the end of Romans, we have Paul saying the same thing. He says, in Romans 16.25, Now to him who was able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. For obedience to the faith. That's the goal. It's not just a faith to be believed. It's a faith to be obeyed. A faith to be lived. And there are many professors. Oh, I believe that. Here, I'll sign that. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. But they don't obey it. James has something to say about that. Faith without works. It's dead. Again, you're not saved through obedience. You're not saved through perfect obedience. You'll never be perfectly obedient. But if you are born again, if you were elect and foreknown and predestined, then there is a line in the sand where you once were a rebel and now you follow Jesus, albeit imperfectly, as Peter is a profound example of. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It's saved a wretch like me. Through the blood of Jesus. Can we really rush to the blood of Jesus? No, we can't. And so, while not being six sermons, we will have to truncate this sermon because this is the magnum opus. This is the, the pinnacle. This is the height. Without the blood of Jesus, there is no salvation. And thus, we will pick up next time on the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb. Father, we thank you for this beautiful letter written to pilgrims dispersed about the earth and written to us today as pilgrims following Jesus. 
May we, Lord, fix our eyes upon him. May we fix our eyes upon the kingdom to come. May that be our hope. May that be our goal. And may we, in the power of your spirit, press onward toward the goal for your glory. We pray it in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.